0: Well, if you were here this past Wednesday, you know we looked at the letter that Christ wrote to the church in Pergamum, which was an interesting letter in light of the fact that this church was in the midst of Satan's throne, as uh, Jesus said, knew it was a very difficult city in which to live as a Christian. Someone even said it was perhaps the most dangerous city. uh, to live as a Christian in the first century. And yet, there was compromise in that church. Some have titled that church the Compromised Church. And so we talked a little bit about that on Wednesday night, and what does that look like? And, and so as I, uh, we ended on the story of Phineas in Numbers 25, who uh, was used by God in a righteous rage, um, to end the, the, uh, the, the uh, plague that it was, had killed some 24,000 people because the Israelites had intermarried once again with uh, the neighboring nations and had adopted some of their worship and worshipped their idols. And so uh, this, the country was mourning. And here comes one of the Israelites that apparently didn't get the memo that you're not supposed to marry you know, somebody who's not a Jew, and he shows up with his Midianite gal on his arm, and here's Phineas, the, the son of the high priest Aaron, grabs a spear and runs it through both of them. And it, it says that God was honored by that, and he stopped the plague uh, because of that, that jealousy, that, that, uh, the jealousy for the glory of God that Phineas had. And so as I was thinking about Phineas, it reminded me of another story in the Old Testament And that is the story of Elijah uh, and the prophets of Baal in 1 1 Kings uh, 18. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings 18 this morning. And I just thought it would be good for us to linger a a little bit longer about this subject of compromise. Because we live in an age of compromise. You may not know that because... The word compromise is creatively couched in terms like pluralism and tolerance and inclusiveness and diversity and mutual respect. These are all popular themes that, that permeate our day. Uh, we are expected to be tolerant of other people's beliefs and traditions and value and respect everyone else's opinions and perspectives. We're told that it's arrogant, it's unloving, it's judgmental to insist that there is only one right religion or only one right viewpoint on a particular issue. And sadly, rather than standing against the world's way of thinking on this, many in the church today have embraced this mindset. And more and more evangelical Christians are seeking to find the middle ground with other religions so they can work together for the common good of the world. Some of you may remember back in the 90s, there was a Some prominent evangelicals who signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, it was called the ECT document, created a big stir. Um, The goal of this accord was to bring these two groups together, Evangelicals and Catholics, for the purpose of cooperating on social and cultural issues about which all Christians share common goals. For example, the fight against abortion. Why do we fight over what we believe, right, our, our doctrinal differences, when we could be fighting together to end abortion, was the, the philosophy there. Well, that took hold, and then in the mid-2000s, about a, gener- a decade later, uh, a similar accord between Christians, now with Muslims, was signed by some well-known, well-meaning evangelicals. And again, the goal of this accord was to find common ground between the two religions so that Christians and Muslims could work together to solve the world's problems. In fact, the most widely known evangelical pastor in America at that time delivered a speech at the annual convention of the Islamic Society of North America. And he called for Christians and Muslims to partner together against the five global giants, war, poverty, corruption, disease, and, illiteracy. and so he, he encouraged Christians and, and Muslims to, to not just tolerate one another, but to develop a mutual respect for one another, which would promote global peace and tolerance. However, while these interfaith efforts may promote some semblance of global peace and tolerance, at the same time, they perpetuate error and unbelief. This kind of cooperation requires both groups to either set aside their theological differences or compromise them by subtly rewording their doctrinal distinctives to make it sound like they agree on things that they've disagreed about for centuries. And in essence, what they're saying is, well, we're no longer going to fight over the, the eternal heaven and hell issues that divide us so we can fight for the temporal social issues that unite us. And consequently, in order to maintain this superficial, artificial unity, neither group can seek to convert the other. So if you're a Muslim, I can't try to convert you to Christ, and if you're a Muslim, you can't try to convert me to Allah. We we just have to, you know, agree to disagree, and let's work together for the things we can agree on. Well, it sounds noble. But I appreciate the words of John MacArthur in an, an article he wrote called The Cost of Compromise in the Ligonier, for Ligonier Ministry, and this is what he said, quote, infiltrating churches under the guise of tolerance and cooperation is one of Satan's most cunning ploys. He does not want to fight the church as much as he wants to join it. That's a scary thought. Undiscerning believers who partner in a common spiritual cause with unbiblical forms of Christianity or other false religions open the door wide to satanic corruption. The appearance of unity, no matter how enticing, is not worth sacrificing the clarity of the gospel. Furthermore, embracing those heretical systems falsely reassures their followers that all is well between them and God, when actually they are headed for eternal damnation. Partnering in a spiritual enterprise with unbelievers helps Satan muddy the doctrinal waters and it cripples our ability to preach the need for repentance, end quote. Well, these ecumenical coalitions are clearly forbidden in the Bible based on what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 6. Some of you may remember this text, Second Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, and he quotes from the Old Testament here, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Obviously, all quotes from the Old Testament where God was commanding the nation of Israel to be holy and set apart unto him. And ever since God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, he demanded their unwavering, uncompromising, undivided devotion and commitment. This is what he said to them at the foot of Mount Sinai before he gave them, well, as he gave them, The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then Moses reiterated the same sentiment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when uh, he was Uh, equipping uh, the next, uh, reiterating the law uh, to the next generation that was going to go into the land of Canaan He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That was a warning to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the land of Canaan, filled with Canaanites who were all idol worshipers. And so he didn't want them to adopt their ways. So, all that to say, compromise may be a good thing when it comes to certain subjects and finding the middle ground is Honorable and desirable in some situations, but not when it comes to deciding who's to be worshipped and obeyed as the only true God of the universe. Then there can be no well-intentioned conversation about things like pluralism and inclusiveness, and, inclusivism and tolerance and mutual respect. Someone said it this way: quote, the living God the Lord of heaven and earth, revealed in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not satisfied with respect. He insists not only on our loyalty, but on our exclusive loyalty. He will not allow himself to be reduced to one possibility in a cafeteria of spiritual options. He forces us to decide there is no middle ground. And that is the point of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We find Israel living in what they perceive to be an acceptable compromise or middle ground between God and Baal. However, that was unacceptable to God. God has never tolerated middle-of-the-road, lukewarm, double-minded, two-timing, fence-sitting compromises. So God raised up Elijah to confront these compromised people and call them back to unwavering, uncompromising, undevo- uh, undivided devotion to him. Jim Elliott, uh, missionary to the Aka Indians, famous uh, story there, But in The Shadow of the Almighty, a book I think that his wife, Elizabeth, wrote later, included a prayer. This was Jim Elliott's prayer. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that people may turn one way or another in facing Christ in me. That's good, isn't it? Elijah was a crisis man. He he was a man God raised up for a particular crisis in the life of his people. And so he acted like a fork in the road that forced people to decide which way they were going to go, which God they were going to follow after. And the heart of this story is found in chapter 18, verse 21. And if you underline things or highlight things or bracket things in your Bible, this would be what you should underline or bracket. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And so here we have a showdown between... God, and Baal. You say, how did Israel even get in this position to begin with? Well, you've got to go back to chapter 16, and we pick up the story in verse 29, and this was after the nation of Israel had divided, and there was 10 tribes that was, it were the northern, 10 northern tribes called Israel, then there was the two southern tribes called Judah. And they went through a series of kings. Both of them went through a series of kings. And it says in verse 29, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Those are the ten northern tribes. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And so Samaria became the capital, if you will, of the northern tribes. Jerusalem was the capital of the two southern tribes. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Like what? Be a little more specific. Verse 31, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So here's a classic example of why God told the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanite nations because they would draw them away from him into idolatry. And so... The first mistake this guy made was marrying a gal named Jezebel. Not a good idea, guys. Just warning you there. If, if she says, hi, my name's Jezebel, run, okay? Which, by the way, I don't think you'll meet that person because I, don't, I can't imagine any parent naming their daughter Jezebel, but I guess perhaps. But anyway, now this was not the introduction of Baal worship. To Israel, this this had already, Baal worship had already infiltrated uh, Israel long before the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, you can see it back in the book of Judges, uh, right after Joshua had led the people into the land of Canaan and they had conquered the land, they didn't drive out all the Canaanites which came back to bite them because uh, they started intermarrying with some of the gals and uh, they began to worship their gods, just like God had told them not to. And so this was a, a perpetual problem with the nation of Israel. But this was, this was next-level Baal worship because Jezebel was adamantly committed to wiping out the worship of Jehovah altogether and replacing it with the worship of Baal. And so it's no wonder... Here uh, about this, it, 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 just if you knew her history, she was born and bred in Phoenicia, where, where Baal worship thrived. In fact, her father was the king of Phoenicia. He, he's named here, Eth Baal, which meant Baal is alive. Uh, in fact, Baal simply means lord or husband or owner. And, and Baal was the predominant god of the Canaanites, he was the storm god who provided all the rain that was essential. To, to the livelihood of this agrarian um, uh, people. Uh, and, and worship of Baal was widespread among the Canaanites. And so here is Ahab. In order to please his wife, he gave this false religion official sanction by building a temple to Baal in Samaria in the capital, along with a wooden image of Baal's wife, Asherah. You, you may be familiar with the Asherah poles that the, the Israelites were... Um, Building and worshiping, um, and so in the midst of this dark era of compromise, God sends a shooting star across the scene named Elijah, who who shows up without any special introduction about him or his calling. There was no Isaiah six. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and this was God calling him. And here I am. Said to me, it's like no. Verse, uh, chapter one of uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead. That's all it says. Just get, here comes Elijah. Shows up on the scene. His name means the Lord is God, and so his ministry really corresponded with his name. He was sent by God to confront Baal worship and to declare to Israel that the Lord was the only true God and there was no other. And notice... How the rest of that verse goes, it says, he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And we know based on James 5.17 that God had prompted him to pray that it would not rain. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months which was, by the way, something that God had threatened to to do, to withhold rain from the land of Israel as punishment on his people for turning from him to serve other gods. And as an agricultural community, their survival depended on rain. If you have no rain, you have a drought. And if you have a drought, you you have famine. And so this drought and this famine that Israel was experiencing was really just symptomatic of a much deeper spiritual problem that God wanted them to deal with. Notice verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is the east, east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have... And I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So in order to keep Elijah from getting killed by Ahab and Jezebel, God whisked him away to a secluded spot east of the Jordan River where he was from originally, and uh, it was kind of the rugged hill country area. And so God provided him or provided for him through ravens, birds that would bring him bread and meat every morning and every evening, kind of like, the, like God had provided manna and quail in the wilderness for the Israelites. Notice verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I am commanding, commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he went from providing for him through a raven now to a widow. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, we got got just enough for one more meal and we're going to eat it and then we're going to die. Then Elijah said to her, verse 13, Do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. That was asking a lot. But he was asking her to trust him and ultimately to trust God. God. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. But then it gets better. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. So he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was, where he was living and laid him on his bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to The widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. So that was a long section, but basically God directed Elijah to a town on the Mediterranean coast named Zarephath, which, by the way, was smack dab in the middle of the territory controlled by uh, uh, Jezebel's father, Ethbaal. And so how, how ironic here that, that Ahab and his bloodthirsty wife would have never thought in a million years to look for Elijah in their old stomping grounds. And yet Elijah stayed there undercover in the home of this widow and her son, and God miraculously provided for all of them during the midst of this famine. And the climax here of Elijah's time uh, in Zarephath was when God used him to miraculously raise this widow's son back to life, which was undeniable proof that God was the only true God and that Elijah was his man, was his prophet. Notice verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, this is her response, when he brought her son back alive, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So this whole experience was, was verifying that Elijah was a true prophet of God. I think it also was an opportunity for him to learn some invaluable lessons about God's provision. Uh, he also developed unshakable confidence in God's power. And it also gave Ahab and Jezebel time to repent. How do you think that went? Yeah, not so good. Notice chapter 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. So after three years of of hiding out from Ahab, God instructed Elijah to reappear before the king. But now the drought had taken such a toll on the land of Israel so severe that the king himself was out looking for food to feed the animals. That's a bad famine. right? If the king's got to be out there looking for food. And he secured the help of Obadiah, who was the manager of his palace, and he was a devout servant of the Lord who had demonstrated his devotion by protecting 100 uh, of the Lord's prophets there when uh, the rest were being killed uh, by Jezebel. Notice verse 7, now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, it is I. Go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. You think he would have been excited? Hey, the prophets come back. But notice his response, verse 9. What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? This would be a death sentence. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know, so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah here, he will then kill me. So Obadiah was afraid that if Elijah was whisked away by the spirit, like he so often was, that Ahab would end up killing him for falsely reporting that he had found Elijah. Look at verse 16. Well, verse 15, as... Elijah said, as the Lord our host of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Can you imagine that? Here, here's Ahab accusing Elijah for bringing all this misfortune on the nation of Israel, saying, this is your fault. And Elijah boldly came right back and said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. You're the real cause of Israel's troubles, Ahab. All this drought, all this famine, can be traced directly back to you and your family's idolatrous practices. And by the way, the drought and famine had already proved that Baal, who was the god of the rains and fertility, was impotent. He was a powerless wannabe. I mean, if, if he was really God, if he really existed, why hadn't he answered their prayers already for rain? And yet, nevertheless, Elijah wanted to leave no doubt in anyone's mind who the only real God is. And so he challenged Ahab to gather all the people of Israel along with the 850 false prophets that his wife supported and meet him at the top of Mount Carmel. Look at verse 19. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah is essentially saying, hey, listen, let's settle this thing once and for all, you and me, mono mono, right, your God versus my God, first thing tomorrow morning, on top of the mountain, Mount Carmel, which, by the way, is very significant where this showdown happened. This is a, a range of mountains that extends 30 miles southeast from the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It, it, it rises about 1,800 feet at its highest point, looks out over the entire Jezreel Valley. In fact, this is if you've been to Israel, you might remember this. This is typically the first stop on your first day. When you get there, you fly in and you land in Tel Aviv and you sleep at a hotel on the coast of the Mediterranean. And then the, they get you in a tour bus and they take you to Mount Carmel. And it's it's a thrilling first adventure as the tour buses climb up into this mountain, and they park, and you get out, and the first thing you see is a statue of Elijah with a sword drawn, and it's just very moving, and you can look out on this, the, you can look out on, on on the valley, and it's a great. Uh, I've had the privilege of actually teaching this text there in, on Mount Carmel. But you say, what's up with Mount Carmel? Why was this the perfect spot for the showdown between God and Baal? Well, first of all, it was the dividing line between Israel and Phoenicia. More importantly, the Canaanites and Phoenicians believed that Baal resided on this sacred mountain. This was the center of Baal worship. And so Elijah knew this was the place for this showdown to happen. Notice what it says in verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. That little phrase, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Literally, how, how long will you limp along between two twigs? The idea is they're here, they're limping along on these crutches. And, and I think his point was that the nation of Israel hadn't totally rejected the Lord, but they were trying to worship him and Baal at the same time. They wanted to enjoy the blessings that came with following God, but they also wanted to enjoy the pleasures of of, of following Baal. And so they were wavering back and forth between the two, and as a result, they were limping along in their spiritual lives because they were not fully committed to God. And so Elijah made it clear to them that it was impossible to serve two gods at once. They had to stop straddling the fence, they had to choose a side. Pick your God. And so in order to help them make up their minds who they should worship and follow, he staged this decisive contest that would prove beyond a shadow of doubt who was the true God. And once that fact was determined, then the decision would be easy, since the real God is the only one worthy of wholehearted worship. So look at verse 22. He sets the rules for the contest. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will, put a, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. The understatement of the century, right? Well, that sounds like a good idea. What was he doing here? He wanted to expose the imaginary nature of Baal. That Baal was a figment of their imagination. He didn't exist. And at the same time, exalt the true nature of God. And so Elijah purposely gave every advantage to the prophets of Baal and went out of his way to stack the odds against God. He gave the he gave Baal the home court advantage, if you will, that this was his mountain. It was 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of God. Then from a human perspective, those aren't good odds. He gave them first pick of the bulls, and the idea there was the best bull would be more likely accepted by, by a god. So they got first pick. He gave them the most time to evoke a response from their so called god. And he made the conclusive factor Baal's specialty because Baal worshipers believed that he controlled the thunder and lightning. So if that's his thing, I mean, consuming this altar with fire, that's easy. That's just one lightning bolt. Wham. Well, let's see how this went. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many, and call on the name of the Lord your God, but put no fire under it, then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "O oh, Baal, answer us!' But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, "'Call out with a loud voice, for he is, he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened.'" So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So all morning, the prophets of Baal are pleading and dancing around, trying to get him to respond. And at, at, at noontime, Elijah decides he's going to taunt them a little bit, make fun of them a little bit, and, and, and mocks their futile attempts by sarcastically suggesting that, hey, perhaps Baal's on vacation. Or, or perhaps he's busy, literally in the Hebrew, he's indisposed, he's using the restroom. Uh, or maybe he's, just, he's taking a nap. And so they were so desperate for a response, they increased the fervor of their appeals. They worked themselves into a frenzy, and they they went so far as to cut themselves to evoke Baal's pity, which was a pagan custom, obviously forbidden by God. And so for three quarters of the day, they tried in vain to get Baal to respond, but Baal was completely unresponsive. He He remained silent. Which, which I think that's the point here of verse 29. There was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Guess what? He doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. He's make-believe. We don't have time to look at this, but Jeremiah 10, verses 3 through 10, you can write that down, Jeremiah was making fun of human idols and said, seriously? You you go into the woods and you see a tree, you cut it down, you carve it into a, a little, you know, statue, and you bow down and worship that thing? Seriously? And you, you, you use the rest to burn, you know, your fire to keep you warm or to cook your food? You gotta be kidding me. It makes absolutely no sense. Well that was a similar thing Elijah here was trying to prove or wanting to prove. Now let's see how this this, uh, this goes for Elijah. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So they're building altars to Baal, and they're tearing down altars to the Lord. He has to rebuild the altar of the Lord. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. I think the idea here is that even though the kingdom was divided, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, that in God's eyes they were still one people with one God, one covenant, one destiny. He says, so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. and he ranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood, and he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and then he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time, and the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So Elijah had already proven that Baal was dead, he didn't exist, now he wanted to prove that God was alive so that the people of Israel would turn back to the true and living God. And so he he has this sacrifice, this whole altar drenched with water, which from a human perspective he was making it harder for God to ignite the wood. You ever try to start a fire with wet wood? Or wet matches, right? It's frustrating. It doesn't always go so well. I think he wanted to prove that what they're about to witness was no trick or, 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 or sleight of hand. Only a miracle could explain what was about to happen. It's kind of like a magician. If you've ever watched A Magician and he, he kind of keeps adding levels of difficulty to his trick or, or to his escape, like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to first of all be handcuffed. Like, ooh. He's going to get out of handcuffs. handcuff. And at the same time, I'm going to be, my feet are going to be shackled together. And then they're going to put me in a burlap, they're going to blindfold me, and they're going to put me in a burlap bag, and then they're going to hoist me up on a crane, and then they're going to put me in a water, under the water, like, and whoa, wow, this is like getting harder and harder and harder. How's he going to get out of this? That's the idea here. And then notice verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. What a contrast to the prayerful antics of the prophets of Baal. They had spent some six hours chanting and dancing and cutting themselves, and here Elijah prays a very simple prayer, probably lasted 20 seconds, and no sooner than the words came out of Elijah's mouth, fire fell from heaven and totally consumed, not just the offering, but the altar itself. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. By the way, that's the difference between praying to no one and praying to someone. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They got the point. And then notice verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So Elijah capitalized on the euphoria of that moment and called on the people of Israel to seize the prophets of Baal and to kill them. And fill the Kishon brook with their blood that had dried up as a result of their idolatry. By the way, when you're up on Mount Carmel, you can peek over the edge and you can see the the brook there. It's a fascinating scene. And and don't think, wow, this just seems kind of merciless here, kind of a slaughter of innocent lives. No, the, the people of Israel were fulfilling God's command to kill false prophets so they wouldn't lead other people astray. Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a guy says, hey, this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, kill him because he's going to lead people astray. And if there's a city that embraces a false prophet and believes what he tells them, burn the whole thing down. Leave nothing there. There. Verse 41, now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So it's about to rain. Elijah knows God's going to answer his prayers for rain. He's going to restore the people, restore the land. And so he tells Ahab to go celebrate. Go celebrate. Go eat and drink. The drought's over. And while Ahab was eating, Elijah was crouching down in prayer. Notice verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I think he was praying there. And he said to his servants, go up now, look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times, and it came about the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ab rode and went to Jezreel. By the way, you can actually, when you're on Mark Carmel, you can kind of walk around to the edge of the little tourist section, and look out, and you can see the Mediterranean Sea, probably where his servant was, was looking to see the clouds, the storm clouds brewing out there. So Elijah encouraged Ahab to, to head for home here before the torrential downpour came and and, and uh, caused all sorts of flooding and mudslides, and, and so it would have made driving in a chariot difficult. Jezreel was where his winter capital was. It was about 25 miles east of uh, Mount Carmel, so he had, he had a ways to go. But then notice how this ends here, verse 46, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. It was customary in, in the ancient Near East that uh, when a king was in his chariot, he, had, he would have runners that would go before them. And so Elijah, I think, was showing Ahab his loyalty by rendering him this service. But the prophet, it says, outran a chariot 25 miles in the pouring down rain, right? I mean, this is like just under a marathon we're talking about. And uh, outruns horses. (laughs) So again, I think this was a picture of God's supernaturally energizing his prophet here, kind of the bionic man. You guys remember that show? When he would do that, right? This was this was the, this is this is Elijah, man. He was running like the bionic man. Uh, gets there before Ahab does. That's a cool story, isn't it? We didn't need that story to prove to us that God is the only true God. We already know that, don't we? That's not the question. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And there is no God but one. For even there are, for even if if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. We don't question that. We we know that God Is real. The question is, are we following him with all our hearts? Or are we guilty of pursuing him and other things at the same time? I think too many Christians today are are, are so devoted to the gods of this world or to their own idols. They have so many other commitments to so many other things that they rarely have time or energy or money left to devote to worshiping and serving the Lord. Everything else in in their lives takes greater priority over the things of God, whether even if it's good things like family and friends and career and hobbies and vacations and achievements and stuff, you, you fill in the blanks. And I think there's a naive assumption that we can serve the Lord by holding on to all of these things that are so dear to us, and we must not be like the people... Of Israel who seem to be unaware that God deserves and demands our unwavering, uncompromising, undivided devotion and commitment. So, how about you? How about me? Are we limping along through life because we have yet to wholeheartedly and exclusively commit ourselves to God? How much longer will you hesitate? You need to make up your mind. You need to pick a side. Who is your God? Who will you serve? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story that has so many implications for our lives today. We live in a day of compromise all around us. And on some level, that's good. We need to learn how to do that and when it's appropriate in our marriages and um, you know, decisions that we make with others that involve other people. But, Lord, when it comes to you and your truth, we can't compromise. And so, Lord, give us courage, Lord, wisdom to know the the issues that we can bend on and those that we can't bend on, and to give us the courage to stand strong and true to you and your word. And, Lord, if there's anyone here who's who's, um, straddling the fence, hesitating between two opinions, whether they should follow you or not, whether they should commit their life to Christ or not, Lord, that today um, you would grant them the grace to go hard after you. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.